0: to the proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at Admin at New
1: Well, thank you, Pastor Tim now that our minds are full and overflowing from a systematic, dogmatic perspective, um, but but an important perspective, now we get into three lectures on, and this is is my favorite part of of the doctrine of the Trinity, the vestiges of the Trinity. And uh, I believe, both from a systematic standpoint um, as well as from a biblical standpoint I believe I see this in scripture that everything in creation and redemption and everything that will be forevermore will bear the the fingerprints of the triune nature of God now the interesting thing is that There are some today in the recovery doctrine of the Trinity, which is by and large a a wonderful thing. Uh, I've referred to them at times as flat Trinitarians uh, that are not so enamored with the vestiges of the Trinity. I have heard some of these theologians say things like You know, the the, the trinity is for our minds for worship. It's not to be sort of developed uh, for application. Uh, And I think, hang on, hang on. If God is, if the fundamental, I'll, I'll say this. If the fundamental distinction of God, you may go back to the second lecture, and I argued that we should prioritize the oneness, the unity, or the um, the essence of God, or you could say the incommunicable attributes, we should prioritize that over the over the Trinity. so i 'm not sure if I 'll say the fundamental aspect of God is this Trinity, but I will say the fundamental distinction of of the of the Christian God is the Trinity. all right i 'll put it that way. And if that is the case, how could we possibly believe that that most foundational Doctrine is not worked out in everything that we, that we see and, and all of our experience. So, uh, Herman Bavink uh, says this the thinking mind situates the doctrine of the Trinity squarely in the full orbed life of nature and humanity. In other words, the Trinity affects everything. And that's what we're going to be considering uh, in these last three lectures. Another function or um, characteristic of these last lectures will be Trinitarian triads right and by triads of course I mean sets of three but in different ways we're going to take a look at three triads today in different ways they reflect some of the the distinctions of the, tri, of the triune God that we've been considering. Things like the processions and how they have their persons in relation to one another and, and how there are appropriations uh, of the Father, Son, and Spirit such that even though they are one fully in the essence, each fully God, um, that there is, that how we, we see certain things emphasized in regards to the Father, Son, and Spirit in different ways. And this bears out on these triads and on these, uh, these markings of the, of the Trinity that we see in creation. So in this lecture, we are going to consider, um, we're gonna look at, at creation. We're gonna take a look at, uh, yeah, we're gonna start by looking at three Trinitarian triads that we're gonna draw from the Genesis account. So you're gonna wanna grab your Bibles and look with me at Genesis chapter one, And then I'm going to, once we take a look at those three Trinitarian triads, then we're gonna look at some systematic triads that I think would be about creation. Some of them may be arising from Genesis one, maybe some of them would just be inferences of the doctrine of creation. And then we're gonna finish with some interesting Trinitarian applications to the doctrine of, yes, I'm using that word. Here we go, the doctrine of mathematics. Here we go. Yes, absolutely. I believe we've got some wide eyes here. I believe that there is. Uh, I believe the. I believe mathematics is a rich field for. Uh, for Christian doctrine and for Trinitarian doctrine, uh, and so before I get into this, maybe I will mention that there is one theologian in particular who has done some work on this, um, by the name of Vern Poitras. and uh, Vern Poitras uh, and his good. Uh, friend and peer, John Frame, uh, are some of the, yeah, two of the really the foundational authors that sort of got me thinking, beginning to think about these triads. I've developed things in, in, in my own ways, but I'm very thankful to them. And, um, and I draw from them in a few different places. So take a look with me now at Genesis chapter one. So the first triad that I want to um present to you is the normative triad or the processional triad now that's you know big words what does that mean well very very simple it's that the triad that we will look at and again we're talking about not just one example but a pattern that we find repeatedly throughout scripture is the processional triad of father son and spirit okay it's just the normative triad father son spirit and if you understand how they interrelate and, um, and the processions, then you'll be able to see that reflected in these triads, okay? So we're gonna start with the simple processional triad. And here in Genesis chapter one, we see some triads that, um, yeah that illustrate that. So the clearest example is found in the creation. And so for instance, in verse three, we see, and God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So note that. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So, if you look down to the, uh, to day four, we, say, we see, And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and god made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and god set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and god saw and god saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day many theologians uh, have recognized this is this is a well-known truth about genesis chapter 1 that on the first three days of creation, that you've got the creation of spheres, and then you've got a separation within those spheres. You saw that that idea of separation. And then there is a filling of those spheres on the second three days, okay? So days one, two, and three correspond in creation and separation to the days of four, five, and six in filling, right? So right away, you've got some, some threes to deal with. You've got, um, you've got, you've got three spheres, three, filling, three fillings. But what I want you to note in regards to this processional triad is that in creation, separation, and filling, you've got a Trinitarian triad. Those reflect Father, Son, and the Spirit in very significant ways. The Father as, as the normative uh, you know, person of the, of the, of the triune God. And, and we see this normativity in the creation God said, and there was now it's created, but now there's a further separation just as the son is distinct from the father. He is seen as that, which is, um, yeah, he's, he's different from the father and yet still of, of the father. So there's a separation in uh, in these spheres and then there's a filling of these spheres which as i mentioned at the end of the last lecture um perhaps most specifically picks up on the holiness of the holy spirit that there's a that there's a filling there's there's this outgoing succession to the spirit in in bounty and in overabundance all right so we see creation separation and filling and in fact uh Uh, an excellent theologian on some of these patterns in genesis is the medieval theologian uh, bonaventure Uh, let me read to you from him he says therefore the divine operation which built the fabric of the universe was threefold creation properly reflecting omnipotence division reflecting wisdom and provision reflecting a most generous bounty and uh If you haven't read Bonaventure you might go okay well that's just some interesting associations no Bonaventure actually his entire system of theology is triadic in its form it's not only triadic in its form he also has these uh, these other numbers that he works with seven and twelve but uh, he is very triadic in his thinking uh, I want to show one other processional triad in Genesis chapter 1 and it's in the layout really of the whole chapter You've got, uh, or or even getting, I guess it gets into, yeah, it gets into the beginning of chapter two. But uh, there is this uh, Trinitarian triad of the summary at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then you've got the creation, which takes place on six successive days. And then, You've got the rest on the seventh day. I believe that that's Trinitarian. It's a triad in which you have a normative summary of of God's creation, reflecting the Father. You've got the specificity of everything in the order of what God does on the six days. And you've got this rest, this goodness that comes about on the seventh day, which is particularly interesting in light of the fact that God does not need to rest. He didn't get tired, but what it does is it emphasizes the the goodness, the the extra of God. What's another word we could use for that? The bounty of God, the the extravagance of God. There's this rest, um, kind of everything moving back to God, which reflects the Holy Spirit. So that's, those are processional, triad, process, processional triads. Uh, just You can call this the normative triad, uh, the foundational triad. And we're going to see, as we go throughout these next three lectures, you're going to see this over and over again. Okay? Again, it's just the same triad as we get in the processions. It's the same triad as we get in the baptismal formula. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let's delve in a little deeper. Because what we also see is... Um, and I'm going to call this the, the immature triad or the unfinished triad. Okay? So, what I want you to note here is that, well, let's read from verse 6. This is day 2. All right? Day 2. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the water from the waters and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, if we were reading the entire chapter from beginning to end, and, and you would have more easily noted that there's something missing on the second day. There's a pattern that's repeated all throughout Genesis chapter one. But within that pattern, there's something missing on the second day. And not only on the second day, also on the fifth day. And it is that there is a lack of God saying that it was good. It doesn't say that. And again, it happens on the fifth fifth day, which corresponds to the second day. So you've got first day. Good. Second day, nothing. Third day, good. And then you've got the filling of those spheres. Third day, which corresponds to the first, it's good. Uh, Fourth day, uh, oh, I think I said fifth before, sorry. Fourth day, uh, no statement. And then fifth, am I getting this wrong? First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. No, I had it right in the first place, I got it wrong the second time, I'm sorry. The fourth day, statement that it's good, which corresponds to the first day. The fifth day, no statement, corresponding to the no statement on the second day. Sixth day, again, a statement that it's good, corresponding to the third day. So what you have is a pattern. It's, it's not something that's just somehow, it's something that somehow is missing. Well, I mean, we're not sure what to make of it. There's a pattern there. Now, there's a couple of other things um, that... You know, maybe once you you see that, then maybe now you're looking for some other clues here that might not be, you know, maybe, maybe might be a little more subtle. One question I think you ought to ask, if you're a Christian that is alert to the Trinity, is where do we see the Trinity in Genesis chapter one? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, if we understand the normativity of the Father, being God, then we go, okay, there's the Father, right? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, we have the Holy Spirit. Where's the sun? Well, I think we could answer that in two ways. The first way is it's in the next verse. He's in the next verse. And God said. He is the word of God. He is the one through whom God creates. And God said, let there be light. So there you have the sun. Um, but notice what happens when you, when you do that. I think that's right. But notice then that what you have is the sun after the Holy Spirit. Oh, it you know, might just be, a, I mean, is that significant? Well, it might be considering that that's the same pattern that we see in the incarnation. So in the Incarnation, the Son comes to the earth because the Father sends his spirit upon Mary, and the Son is conceived and is born. We see this again at the baptism of Christ. Christ is there, and the Father sends his spirit upon the Son. And uh, and so what we have here is a pattern that I believe reflects um, creation in a particular way. That it is the sun who comes down, and you might, I'm going to use this analogy, and so you, again, you, you test this and see if there's maybe a better way of expressing this, um, but there's a sense in which, uh, here's the analogy, here's the illustration, that within the threeness of God, the sun comes down from his second position, if you will. Again, I'm using analogical language second position to come below the holy spirit into creation and i think that's helpful in understanding the incarnation now notice one thing further here in genesis chapter one that between the statement about god creating the heavens and the earth and the spirit of god hovering over the waters you've got this idea that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep So in the place that processionally you would expect the sun to be, you've got something that's unfinished. It's not bad. God created all things good. But it's raw material that needs to be developed. And this corresponds to the fact that in that second place, within those triads of God's, uh, within those sets of three of God's creation, of the three spheres, and his filling of the three spheres, in that second place, you've got something that is said is not good. What is it telling us? It's telling us that God created, even though he did create all things good, he created it unfinished for a purpose. For a purpose. And I believe that that purpose actually has to do with his son. Right? If you remember, when we were talking about the the modern issue of, Eternal functional subordination. Remember that we talked about the eternal covenant of redemption. And the fact that God the Father's purpose, we ought to see a centering issue in in all of this, being that the Father desires to give his Son something eternally. and, And even, if we can use this language, even to promote the Son relative to creation and redemption. Again, you can't add anything to the Son in regards to his divinity, but you can add to the Son in regards to how he is viewed from within creation and redemption. So you've got this, I'm calling it an unfinished or immature triad, uh, where you've got this, this lacuna, there's something missing, something unfinished that really projects forward to how Christ will fulfill it and then be exalted above all things and eternally. All right. So, be on the lookout for that. Again, I mentioned that triad uh, in relationship to the incarnation and the baptism of Christ. Now, let's see a third triad, which is, uh, I'm going to call it the gratuitous triad. And if the second triad, the immature one, maybe emphasizes the Son a bit, maybe this one emphasizes the Holy Spirit a bit. And I'm not actually, there may be other triads. I'm not, I'm not saying that these are the only three triads. I, I see some other things as well in Scripture, um, but these are the ones I want to draw out here for us this evening. Look with me at the third and sixth of the day. Now again, the third and sixth of the day correspond to the third person of the Trinity, if what we are seeing thus far does reflect the Trinity. That's where we should expect to see something about the Holy Spirit. So look with me then at the third and the sixth days. Um, Verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which, In which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and there was evening and there was morning the third day now let's turn to the sixth day and let's read verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, maybe without saying it out loud, I just want to ask you the question, what did you note about those days in relationship to the others? There was something unique about those two days that was distinct from the other days. And the answer is this, that both the third and the sixth day have two things that flow out of God's creation on that day. All the other ones have sort of one category of thing, whereas the third and the sixth day have two categories of thing. So, for instance, in day three, you've got verses nine to ten, and God saw that it was good, but then it keeps going. Then the earth is going to sprout vegetation and plants. And then on the sixth day, you've got the creation of all the beasts, but then you get this extended, and God says it was good, but then you get this extended extra section, where now all of a sudden, let us make man in our image. And so, you have two categories assigned to this third day and it's the second of those categories that, that is seen as being greater or leading to sort of the next thing and what we see is this pattern repeated throughout scripture I'm not going to give you other examples now but we'll build on this in the subsequent lectures when it comes to redemption and when it comes to the last things we see that in this third place in triads there is often, and this, this triad takes place in a couple of different forms. Um, one of the forms of this gratuitous triad is that there are two things within the third thing. All right, so the first thing, the first part of the triad is one, the second part of the triad is another, the third part of the triad is sometimes two things in one. Um, the second way that is sometimes, um, takes place this gratuitous triad is that within the third thing it unfolds into a whole new triad and we're gonna see this in some other passages in Scripture this particularly takes place in the book of Revelation a fascinating thing to do on your own time it's actually a lot it's just really really interesting uh, I, I, I would say it's a lot of fun is go throughout the, the the book of Revelation and look for triads and especially nested triads where you've got a first thing second thing and third thing and then the third thing unfolds into a new set of one, two, three. And sometimes you've got a nested triad that actually goes to a fourth generation in, a, in at least one place. But sometimes, I, I think there's at least another place where it's three sort of generations. It might be more than that, but at least that. So you've got three different triads that I'm introducing here from Genesis chapter 1. And if you think, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading between the lines too much, keep that in your mind, and let's test it over the next couple of lectures. And we'll see some of these triads, I believe, being borne out. So, um, let me mention, moving from the biblical text, uh, maybe in a a specific way, or an expositional way, let me move to some systematic triads that are relative to creation. All right? Now maybe by way of introduction, I will say that I adhere, even though I've built up my my system in a, in a different way or without reliance on John Frame and Vern Poitras, that they have um, come up with this system that was foundational for my own thinking called tri-perspectivalism, all right? Tri-perspectivalism, and uh, a book. I mean, John Frame really was. I think he was the first one to come up with this idea. Um, but probably the greatest uh, book that I know of, as unfolding it, and and I don't. Again, I don't know all the books, so maybe there are others that would be similar in scope. But this is this book here by Vern Poitras called "Knowing and the Trinity," is astonishing in its breadth, breadth and scope. And it's one of those books that you probably need to read three times to to really begin to comprehend how widespread the idea of these Trinitarian triads is or this tri-perspectivalism is. Now, one of the things, let me say one more thing about tri-perspectivalism. That what it posits and what James, John Frame really le- leaned into as he first sort of used the term and tried to develop it was that there's, there's, there's different ways of looking at one thing. And in fact, he posited that there's three ways of looking at everything. And, uh, and so, um, this is sort of a, it's very similar to these triads that I'm building out. But I think that one of the things that having this tri-perspectivalism or tri-perspectival approach, one of the things it does for us is it keeps us from being dogmatic in a negative fashion. It keeps us from thinking to ourselves, perhaps especially in our systematic theology, that it's this, and because it's this, it's not that. Now, sometimes that is precisely the case. Sometimes it is this and not that. But there are other times with some things in Scripture that it's this and also this and also this. And I think that when you understand how these Trinitarian triads work, uh, I think it helps you stay balanced. Uh, and again, you always you're testing things from Scripture, right? Not, not just some, and I'm constantly doing that, right? We don't want to have a system of thinking that we're, we're imposing on Scripture. We want it to, to come from Scripture. Okay, so here we go a couple of systematic triads. First of all, the nature of the image of God in man. Okay? So, we read in Genesis 1 that man is made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, very quickly, there have been three main categories that have been suggested. And I think it's all three. Uh, I think there's a normative one, though. I think this is actually a Trinitarian triad. First of all, there is a substantive view. And this has been um, emphasized in Reformed theology a great deal. And again, I think that this is the normative perspective, but over and against some reformers, I don't think this is exclusively the only perspective on the image of God. So the substantive view is this, that because God is not a body, that our image, the image of God in us, must have something to, to do with our mind, with our rationality, with our will, or our original righteousness before God. Again, if it's not clear already, I believe that is true, but I don't think it's the only one. There's also a relational view. And you see this in the creation of male and female made in the image of God. That we, um, that in this view, you actually need male and female both to image God in the earth. Right? And the close association with God creating man in his own image and then male and female and how that bears out uh, in what follows argues that There is a relational view to the image of God. And especially, Bavink's excellent on this. Herman on I preached recently on this. um, In how man is said to be the image of God. Angels are not. And and the relational view is one of the ways that really this gets teased out. The angels don't build families and generations and societies. All right? Uh, And then the last... um, aspect of the image of God is the functional the functional view um, and and you see this in in the dominion mandate in verses 28 and following um, it's the it's the yeah it's the taking dominion it's the subduing of the earth it's the expansion right so there's you might say that this substantive relational functional aspect is emphasizes you know the inherent um, image we ha- each person has in them the relative image of God that we have in relationship to one another and the expansive image of God that we, as we build God's kingdom. And I believe that this, uh, reflects the father, the son, the spirit, Uh, one, uh, one more triad that we, uh, that we see, I, I think stemming from the early parts of Genesis and certainly the early church fathers, many of them would point this out. I think, I think it works. There's been some people that have said, oh, be careful when it comes to this. But I think it works. The early church fathers pointed to it. And that is that there is a systematic, sorry, there's a triad, a Trinitarian triad in the family. Man, woman, and child. Okay? Now, you have to be careful in that when it comes to the analogies of Scripture, for the most part, um, the analogy works one way, okay? So, if you say, for instance, okay, there's a vested unity in the human family, father, or, or uh, you know, husband, wife, child, then what you must not do is say, oh, the son is a, is a woman? Like, how does that work? The spirit is a child? No, no, no. That you're, you're reading back the analogy the wrong way, okay? But it's a vestige of the Trinity in that the, the husband and father is normative. He has, you see this in pages of scripture, right? So God created man in his own image. The race of man is called after Adam. It's called after the male. And so the male in the marriage has a primacy. But the female is created second. But not only second, when we say second, we tend to relate that as not not having primacy. But the woman is created as the last thing. In a progressive six day crescendo. And so there is also a sense in which the woman, I'm gonna use this word, it's my favorite word to try to tease this out, try to put language to this. The man is, has primacy, the woman has preeminence. Okay? Now maybe there's better words out there, though that's what I'm using. That is that she is seen visibly manifested as the glory of the race all right, and you see that in first corinthians the woman is the glory of man all right and i believe in a way that reflects the fact that the sun is the preeminence or the glory the manifestation visibly of the glory of god okay and then you've got the child the child as uh as man and woman come together is what is what flows out and, it, and the child has this expansiveness to it because that child gives the potential for, for growth and has the potential not only for growth in and of themselves but to successive generations, right? I, I think that that's an excellent um, analogy of the Trinity in, a, in sort of a limited fashion but certainly a vestige of the Trinity. Um, Moving outside of the pages of sort of Genesis, uh, let me suggest to you a triad that relates to beauty, right? And this is something that was, I, I know Aquinas uses this triad. Um, I don't know where he got it from, but I think it fits, and I think, it's tri- I think it's Trinitarian triadic. He talks about, and we should care about beauty as classical learners, right? We, we, we want things not only to be functional, we want them to be beautiful what how we do things we want to to do it well and in a beautiful way so here we go Uh, beauty is that which has first of all in a normative way form it has form it has to by by form I mean it has um, a structure that adheres to its purpose okay so you know something that has no form is not beautiful right a blob on the ground that's not beautiful Um, it said has to adhere to whatever its purpose is whatever it's it it needs some sort of form the second part of beauty and I believe this reflects the 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 Sun is symmetry symmetry it has to have proportion proper proportion Um, and then thirdly things that are beautiful have to have color all right and again with color You've got the idea, uh, and, and in fact, sometimes the word glory is used instead of color, but the idea that there's this um, extravagance to, to beauty it, with all of its various hues and, um, and, yeah, and colors. Um, so there's, we, we could keep going, but I just want to give you a taste for this as we build a foundation for heading into our subsequent lectures. Let me finish by suggesting a couple of things relative to mathematics. Um, first of all, I'm gonna mention a couple of things relative to mathematics. First of all, as Vern Poitras points out, and I believe that he is drawing to some degree, I mean, he's a, he's a mathematician in his own right, a very high level mathematician, so he sees this probably in a greater way or in a more expansive way, but I think he's actually drawing this from from Van Til uh, when he talks about the problem, the philosophical problem of the one and the many. All right, now, this is a problem that occurs in in ancient philosophy. The idea, it goes like this, okay? You've got two ducks. Um, How do you know that they belong to the same Category. How do you know that a duck is a duck? Now, there's two ways you could approach the problem of the one and the many. The one would be to say that there is some preconceived idea of what a duck is, such that when you see a duck, you know it fits the category of duck. The other way of approaching it is by approaching it from the idea of the many. That you know the category of duck because you've seen a bunch of ducks before and you go, well, that, they all got bills and feathers. And so I think they're the same category. All right? And philosophers have debated throughout all of history over the, it's called the problem of the one and the many. Do You approach this categorization, this natural epistemology that we, we do, we, we have to do it to make categories in our minds. Where do you start from? and what van till and Vern Poitras say is well you don't have to start from either place because it's a trinitarian solution that you've got the fact that in the father now i'm drawing from Poitras, in the father you've got the idea of a normative category of a conception of a purpose right you've got the, this this category this of, of the you know the one if you will the one you know Great duck <laughs> that we, you know, we, we compare everything to, all right? But in the, in the many, this duck and that duck, and you, you've got the idea of, uh, of the many. You've got the, and you could talk about the son, because why? The son is the instantiation of God. You know God because of the son. And the father... He gives his son in the eternal begetting and then, of course, also in the incarnation, such that he is, he is a, a, a distinct thing, person, from God, from the Father, right? So the idea of, of the many, even though, of course, there's only one son. And what Verne Poitras points out, however, is that we have not just the father in the oneness and the son in the particularity or the distinction, but you also have, you need, they have to be related The one and the many have to be related. Well, what's that relation? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, that association. All right? So there you've got a wonderful application of the doctrine of the Trinity to a philosophical problem of the one and the many. It's really an an epistemological problem. Okay. One last thing about mathematics. Um, Mathematics are an area that I don't know that much about. And yet, in spite of the fact that I don't know much about it, if Fascinates me to no end, and so um, I, I actually think about mathematics. Even though my, you know, I, I'd probably be good only about to grade s- seven math. Probably that's probably where I tap out. Um, but the area of, of math that really I love, and I wish somebody had taught me this per, this perspective on math, is the philosophy of math. The philosophy of math is, is absolutely fascinating. So here's the interesting thing. The question is this, how are one, um, how are one and two related? No, 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 I, I, sorry, I'm gonna reframe that, I'm gonna reframe that. Um, let's talk about the numbers one, two, and three. That, that's, how we'll, that's how we'll do it, all right? I, there, I'm dealing with two different sort of sets of, of information here. So first of all, uh, you've got the idea Reflecting the father of singularity, okay? One as one and one alone, right? Now, we know, of course, the father's not alone, but, but he, ref, he reflects the, the, uh, the singularity as a reflection of the father, all right? So you've got, you've got one and one alone. Um, in, in the number of two, you've got the idea of separation, right? Because one is not two. It's distinct, Okay, so you've got singularity reflecting the Father. You've got separation reflecting the Son. But then when you move to the number three, all of a sudden, like, so for instance, in Genesis chapter one, you've got three spheres or three fillings. You've got the idea of a set, a complete set. Why? Because the Trinity terminates with the Holy Spirit. You've got a complete set. And well, let me suggest to you that this emphasizes the, uh, the Spirit aspect. Of the Holy Spirit. Remember I I unfolded that a little bit for you. But then also you've got the idea of succession. With one, two and three. You've got the fact that there's not only a set. Of one, two and three. But you've got this one, two, three pattern. That suggests something goes on and on. And that emphasizes the holiness of the Holy Spirit. Right? That unfolding nature. That expansiveness of the Holy Spirit. So within the numbers one, two, and three, you've got singularity, you've got separation, you've got a set, and you've got succession. And I think that that's just one of many different connecting points that we could give or we could see in the relationship between the Trinity and mathematics and really Trinity and the world. I believe that this area of of how the Trinity is seen in creation is probably the most untapped aspect of Christian theology that exists. I think that somebody needs to put in their life's work into seeing how the Trinity is reflected in creation. In fact, I suspect you could put your life's work into seeing how the Trinity is reflected in mathematics and another person could put in their life's work into seeing how the Trinity is reflected in music and in art and architecture, and you could keep going on and on. Uh, and so I hope that at the very least, that again, this is a classical perspective. This helps us to wonder at creation and look for how God's fingerprints, his triadic fingerprints, as our Trinitarian God is on, is, is on and over and in everything that He has created. Let's close in prayer.